On Blues Radio International, it's Jesse and Audrey taking you to Chicago for famed recording engineer, producer, and chairman of the Blues Foundation, Michael Freeman. Hi, Michael. Hi, Jesse. How are you? Uh, we're fine. We're, we're great to uh, be with you today, and we're uh, really appreciative of your taking the time to speak to us. I wanted to spend a little time before we talk about the Blues Foundation to get uh, for our audience, uh, your incredible background. You're obviously not a Chicago native, and somehow you got all caught up in the blues. I know. Um, it, it, it's, it's, it's a long story, but um, I originally came, well, actually, I, my first um, visits to the United States were when I was 12 years old. And my father had been headhunted by a company in Dallas, Texas. And this was, we arrived, I think, in the April of 1964. So um, the Kennedy assassination was still in the air. Dallas was a very segregated city. Um, the Beatles were invading. Uh, there were just all sorts of things going on. And my father was involved in uh, some technology for the space program. So my head was spinning at 12 years old. Um, we went back to the UK just about two years later. Um, and then I met some musicians uh, in 1976 who were from Chicago, who were looking for um, somebody to, to run their business and also for a bass player. And they finally persuaded me to move to Chicago in 1973. Um, and I was out on the road with them for a little while. Uh, and then I went to uh, out on the road with a, a group called Pez Band, who were the group that coined the genre power pop. And um, got tired of being on the road, published a music newspaper in Chicago called Stage Pass for some years and then found my way into the recording world and um, uh, was hired as a studio manager at a, uh, a studio complex called Head and West, uh, which was later renamed Remington Road Studios. And that was sort of a 10 year apprenticeship for me because I think from the minute I walked into the studios, I wanted to learn how to make records. So I, I ran the business by day and made records by night and learned how to do it all. And um, I went out in 1986 as an independent uh, engineer and producer, and by that time I had um, amassed uh, a, a modest um, uh, discography with with quite a diverse set of people. And um, I got a call from Blind Pig Records, who were in the middle of a Joanna Connor record. Um, I, I can't remember if it was the Believe It record or the Slide Time record. I think it might have been Believe It. And um, the engineer that they were using at the particular studio was very ill. And they asked if I could take over the project. Well, very sadly, um, Mike Rasfield passed away before uh, that project was finished. And I inherited the Blind Pig Records account in Chicago. And that led to, I think, 25 albums with them. Um, and a lot of other uh, blues projects that came along the way. And right now I'm working on my uh, 70th, I think it's my 70th blues album, uh, finishing up a Mississippi Heat record. Um, I've been uh, uh, very uh, thrilled to have received a, a Blues Music Award and a Keeping the Blues Alive Award and a Grammy Award and a couple of nominations for the work that I've done. So um, I'm, I'm very, uh, very thrilled that my work has, uh, that my peers have felt it was uh, worthy of, uh, of comment. What perspective do you have on the state of blues music when you look back on the recording experience you've got? Uh, and how it's evolved uh, since the time you first got involved? 
Um, well, I think the the um, the advent of contemporary blues is a category which sometimes one would say borders on um, uh, moving blues into a, a genre that's just influenced by blues. Um, I think that that has changed the perception. Um, you know, the, the, the younger up and coming artists uh, never experienced what the, the legacy blues artists experienced in their lives. So we, 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 you know, we didn't live that. They didn't live that. So um, all the work that they do is, is really uh, a tip of the hat to, um, to the, uh, the legacy artists that we revere so much. Um, but th there are artists who are producing records that um, are very, very fine. And um, we're seeing a younger generation come through with people like Kingfish and John Tavius Willis and Marky Knox. And that's exciting because we, we, we absolutely want to see younger blues players uh, come back into the fore again. And I hope that once we're through this um, uh, enforced isolation and uh, the inability to go and see live music, that we're going to see more of them. And I think that's exciting because they will have an opportunity to really um, uh, make their mark. You touched on a topic that I think is at the heart of uh, what many people who care about the blues uh, think about and talk about frequently, but we've never come to a resolution of, and that is how can we expand blues to the point that we can engage other audiences yet still retain its identity as blues music? Uh, some say, for example, we've wandered so far off uh, the path with blues rock that it's become rock and where do we rein things in yet take advantage of the opportunity to expand in directions that might pick up a new demographic, for example, for uh, our very important uh, work to continue the blues. Music has to grow. Music should never be stationary. Um, you know, if you look at, uh, an early blues, which is acoustic blues, and then you move into the electric blues era, that changed blues quite dramatically. Um, we shouldn't be afraid of that change. The artists have to be authentic and they have to be telling the stories that are authentic. Um, we shouldn't be afraid to have other genres identify blues, but we have to make sure that they identify it the correct way. And that they 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 understand um, the components that that really make up a, a blues recording. Um, but it's important that that we do share our genres, history, culture, and music with the other genres, so that they understand a little bit more, perhaps, about where they came from, because most of them have uh, a root in blues. And that's an interesting point that Jesse brought up that I was going to ask you about. And that is that when we go to a show and we experience a young blues performer who has fused elements of classic blues with rock blues and made it their own, the audience demographic is still the same. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious if you have any thoughts on how we could motivate 
the younger demographic to take on an interest in this music so that it can live on? Um, we have to invite them. I think we have to invite them. And I think we have to put it in front of them and say, why don't you come, come into my living room and listen to the music that I love? Um, I teach masterclasses in recording at um, uh, Columbia College in Chicago. And I very often bring in Chicago blues players because uh, the music is very open and easy to record for the most part. And it gives the students a, uh, a good foundation and very good basic recording techniques. But it also introduces them to blues music and, and, and roots music. And many of them have commented to me about um, how they have reacted positively to this. Now, that's just one isolated incident. Um, but I think the more that we can promote blues in, uh, in ways that younger audiences will at least take a look, if they're, if they're not invited, they're not going to find blues. We have to find a way to, to, to get their interest. And I think that also is going to be um, uh, incumbent on the artists there too. Um, I know they, there have to be some exciting young blues artists that a younger audience will attach to. I'm, I'm sure we will have them. I know that audiences, that young audiences that have seen Kingfish have been blown away. Um, uh, you know, we have to invite them. We have to find a way to, to uh, invite them to our living room and listen to our records. And that's an excellent idea. And we've talked to several young people that are actively involved in the blues, either touring or getting their feet wet with um, wonderful things like the Pine Top Perkins Foundation. And you have these wonderful young youths, Kingfish, for example, Aaron Coburn, Jake Kolak. A lot of these kids, they go into blues and they use it as a segue to another genre, be it rock, Americana, um, country, whatever it is. And they're taking those blues elements and sprinkling them around in other genres. So in a mm -hmm. sense, they are keeping the blues alive through that. But with the classic blues, I think that there's still a need for that to stay alive. And I've seen it through the IBC that there are young people that are still very interested in classic blues so hopefully they'll uh, be yep. able to share their gifts with us some more when um, the time comes and that leads me to my next question as a chairperson for the blues foundation what is the blues foundation thinking of as far as 2021 good question <laughs> we're actually um about to have the, uh, the board of directors is about to have a meeting about um what we're going to do in 2021. And that includes a, a, a serious conversations about the IBC, uh, the International Blues Challenge, and the BMAs, the Blues Music Awards. Um, certainly the IBC is not going to be a live event this year. Um, we are looking at some different options to provide uh, our IBC audience worldwide um, with uh, an alternative virtual event. It won't replace the IBC, uh, but it will be in, in lieu of an IBC of 2022. Um, and then we need to talk about what we're going to do for the BMAs in May. 
So there were some very, two very serious conversations are about to take place and we will keep you posted. And the million dollar question, I suppose, is that everybody is uh, whispering in my ear right now is, do you suppose that the BMAs are going to be an in-person event? I don't know. I can't, I can't speculate on that. Perfect. I think that the, the, um, uh, the, the main concerns are the uh, state and local authorities, uh, what they wish us to do, and uh, what Memphis wishes us to do. Um, we have to consider the fact that um, a lot of people are going to be um, very hesitant to travel. Um, uh, you know, there, there, there are many, many different concerns um, about having a live event in 2021 that we have to take into consideration. And it's going to be a bit of a, uh, uh, a work in progress. Um, I think we're going to plan for both eventualities for the BMAs, um, but we'll have to see as time moves along um, what we can and can't do. Uh, and safety, of course, is our absolute primary concern with, uh, you know, with the uh, COVID situation. So uh, that's going to determine what we can and can't do. And are there any um, ideas sprinkling around the foundation about things that can be done next year? Well, again, again it will be um, some sort of virtual presentation if we can't do something live. So that, again, is going to be part of the, uh, the conversations that uh, the board of directors are about to have and with the staff. At the moment, our, our primary concern is the IBC and what Understood. we're going to do. Um, that that's taking up all the bandwidth right now. Um, once we've made those decisions, I think then then, then we're able to look at uh, uh, different programs, different fundraising possibilities, uh, finding new sponsors. Um, I'm encouraged by the uh, the thought that a virtual IBC will reach many many more people around the world than we could with uh, an in-person IBC, um, which I think will in the future attract more people to come and visit um, but that's also very uh, attractive to a sponsor who sees you know thousands more people available to uh, promote the IBC around the world yes and certainly someone who's been to the IBC it defies words you do certainly do have to experience it in person and I think that the more people that could have an example of what it's like brought yes. to them. I think that's a fantastic idea. I can only imagine the people that it could reach. Yeah. Yeah. The, you know, the, the, the challenge, our challenge uh, is to provide uh, a virtual event that in some way shows some of the excitement and the energy that's, uh, that surrounds the IBC. And you know what that's like from, uh, from uh, having been there. That's uh, it's a, a wonderful week of, of activities and um, you know, the blues families getting together music everywhere, networking, seeing people you haven't seen all year. Just it's it's a wonderful event. It really is. So um, that, that's our challenge is to pr provide something that uh, in some way gives an audience a, a feeling for what an IBC is like and that uh, it's so attractive you have to come next year. Let me step back for a minute, Michael, uh, to use your, your great historical perspective and your position uh, in the industry to look forward a bit. The foundation has done an amazing thing in doing so much to keep musicians alive and healthy during 
this crisis. This is something no one could have anticipated. The foundation has stepped up and is there today. And we're hoping that everyone listening has already contributed or will contribute to the Musicians COVID-19 Relief Fund at the foundation. But looking forward, we've got a fan base that very much wants to see live music, is hungering for this, it misses it, and is willing to do what's necessary to see it. We have musicians who need to play. We have venues that need to stay afloat so there'll be places to, to play. How do you see the music industry evolving and coming back in whatever form it's going to come back as we ease back into something uh, after we start the vaccine distribution here? Well, I can only speak from from my perspective and where I sit in the industry, Jesse. Um, I, unfortunately, we, we may lose some venues and some festival promoters due to uh, having closure and not being able to sustain themselves during this time period. I have a feeling, though, that there will be new operators that will come to replace those who have gone by the wayside or uh, the operators who were there will uh, be able to find new financing to um, uh, revitalize their venues. Um, there's a huge, huge appetite to see live music now. Um, so I, I think that that will come back with a roaring, roaring, roaring yes. Uh, we are going to a show tonight, or we're going to Buddy Guy's Legends, or we're going to the Slippery Noodle, or wherever it is, or we're going to a festival. Um, that's going to that that will come back again for sure. Um, one of the things that we, um, uh, in the recording side of things, we're, we're concerned about um, how musicians are going to supplement their income uh, from live performance with recorded material. CD players are disappearing. New cars do not have CD players. Um, so merchandise off stage was a huge part for blues artists' income. Um, it supplemented them in, 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 in very meaningful ways. Um, so to, uh, to sell somebody a, a digital download um, doesn't seem quite the same as giving somebody a, a piece of artwork with, a, with some music inside it that they can keep in a library. Um, and we're seeing, a, a, certainly we're seeing a, a return to um, an appetite for vinyl um, how long that will last, I don't know. Um, I may go on uh, for as long as it can. Um, you know, I have a, a very large vinyl collection that uh, my wife is not fond of because it's so large. But uh, <laughs> but um, one of the, the great things about the vinyl revival has been that young people uh, uh, have been getting together socially and sharing their albums the way I did as a teenager. That's how we all got to uh, learn about the different music that we loved. Um, I think that's very encouraging. Um, I'm, I'm still furious about the the um, revenues that artists see from streaming. I think that's that's horrible. Uh, at some point, you know, in, in the publishing world, there are statutory rates for mechanical royalties, um, but streaming is just uh, it's the wild west and. Um, it's you know when you think of hundreds of thousands of streams and artists getting only hundreds of dollars for that, uh, there's something wrong with that uh, that equation. There really is. I hope that at some point that will change, but that's uh, 
that's up to the uh, the labels and the politicians and whoever else uh, gets involved. Well, Michael Freeman, thank you for joining us today from Chicago to talk about these important matters. And uh, thank you on behalf of everyone at the Blues Foundation and in the blues world for uh, coming on with us today. Do you have any closing thoughts to share with our audience? Listen to blues music, buy blues music, support blues music. And thank you very much for having me on your show, Jesse and Audrey. Uh, it's a pleasure always. Thank you, Michael. Thank you so much. Such a pleasure. Hi there, it's Jesse and Audrey from Blues Radio International. During the coronavirus pandemic, the Blues Foundation's COVID-19 Relief Fund the Heart Fund, and the Blues Foundation has provided immediate assistance to the musicians that we love. If you'd like to provide any contribution to any of these funds, please visit blues.org. You can also write the foundation and send a check. The address is 421 South Main, Memphis, Tennessee. Thanks for being with Blues Radio International and joining us as we continue our tour and support the great work of the Blues Foundation. Please continue to visit us during our viral antiviral world tour and know that Blues Radio International and the Blues Foundation will always be here for you. Thank you very much from Jesse and Audrey at Blues Radio International. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is the Welsh Ledbetter Connection. Monster Mike Welch, Mike Ledbetter, and you are listening to Blues Radio International. Keeping the blues alive. I'm talking about Blues Radio International. Well, 